May my words and our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our God. Amen. As I'm sure you noticed this morning, our two scripture passages are somewhat difficult and uncomfortable. Jesus speaks of conflict and suffering and persecution. And he makes particular reference to the temple in Jerusalem, foreseeing its destruction. Buildings are, of course, very important because they not only provide us the space for our living and our working, they also symbolize the institutions and the cultures and our central beliefs of wherever we live and in whatever culture we are. And the Jerusalem temple in Jesus' time symbolized the very central pillar of all Jewish life, faith in God. It had been built by King Herod the Great, and in the eyes of village people who were only used to small wooden-framed mud-walled houses, I've no doubt its white marble and gold edifice must have seemed not, seemed not only magnificent, but indestructible. And yet Jesus speaks about it being thrown down. Thrown down as the result of great upheavals through famines and earthquakes and wars. In the year 52, there was a famine that hit Palestine particularly hard. In 61-62, there were earthquakes and volcanic eruptions that destroyed Laodicea and Pompeii. And in 66, Cestus, the Roman legate of Syria, marched into Jerusalem to put down an insurrection, leading four years later to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. We too, of course, live in times of insecurity and great uncertainty. In the 1990s, with the collapse of communism in Russia and Eastern Europe, many of us were led to think that perhaps the world might be moving towards greater stability. And the new millennium seemed to be full of promise. But then on September the 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers in New York were brutally destroyed. 3,000 people lost their lives and national symbols of American financial and military and political power were damaged or targeted. And since then, things have gone, if anything, from bad to worse with so many conflicts and crises around the world. Now, every generation throughout human history has suffered as we were remembering in Remembrance Sunday last week. And these words of Jesus, warning of wars and earthquakes and famines, are still very real in a world where wars are raging, where terrorism thrives, nature is degraded, Weapons of mass destruction proliferate. Global warming threatens our future and 
certainly future generations, and international political standards are flouted. Millions of people being at risk from poverty and persecution. I think it's particularly disturbing to see the rise to power of national leaders who are turning their backs on mutual values and international cooperation in favour of national advantage and turning away from tolerance and fair dealing in favour of bullying and the heightening of tension. Last June, the former Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, sounded a warning to his own country, and it sent a shiver down my spine when he said, our institutions and freedoms are slowly but determinedly being sanded down little by little. Now, how are we to react to all of this? To both biblical warnings and present realities? Should we despair? Should we shrug our shoulders? Should we become like the <coughs> proverbial ostrich which buries its head in the sand and look in on ourselves and try to ignore the pain of the world? And yet, surely as Christians, it's precisely when life and the world gets tough that we need to hear the New Testament resounding cries again and again saying, hold fast, be of good courage, don't be afraid. And to remember that commission that we have from Jesus in the reading from Mark, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. The language of the letter to the Hebrews, as you probably heard, is quite difficult. It's the work of a theologian and poet who uses vivid images to describe spiritual truths. Like this one that was within the reading we heard earlier. Christ having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, took his seat where he now waits until his enemies are made his footstool. The writer is saying that what Jesus did on the cross, giving up his life out of love for the world, was a one-off, a once and for all achievement. You might say that just as in the world of drama and music, we could say that Shakespeare's Hamlet or Beethoven's Ninth Symphony are absolutely unique. So in the world of spiritual realities and in the world of human relationships, the life of Jesus and his self-offering, a self-offering of love on the cross, are a once and for all insight into the secrets of life, life in all its fullness, and into the secrets of the true nature of God. So in this famous poetic image that artists have painted time and time again, Christ who did this for us is now back with God, metaphorically as we sang in our last hymn, seated at God's right hand. Christ who did this for us is now back with God, 
and he's there whilst the rest of history rolls on. What this particular passage is saying to us is that Christ has passed the baton on. He's passed the baton on to us, to his body here on earth. And so the writer of the Hebrews then goes on to spell out in three telling phrases instructions, instructions about the way of life that follows then as the human drama continues here on earth, generation after generation, with good struggling against evil and truth wrestling with falsehood, with humility striving against raw power and love offering itself up to hate and poverty contending with plenty. And so we have these three phrases. The first one, let us be firm and unswerving in the confession of our hope. I think there's a sense in which the uh, cross for Jesus was inevitable. Not in some mysterious way to purchase God's favour, but because once crowds started following him, once he began to describe and to live out the life of love, once he stood alongside the poor and the socially outcast people, then inevitably the religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the time were going to become somewhat fearful. He began to talk about a new kingdom, a new kind of society. And that was probably seen as very inflammatory and perhaps even treasonable. When we, and as they plotted against him, and as this plot gathered pace, Rather than running away, what did Jesus do? He faced it head on. When we consider this, the state of the world in, the, uh, in which we are living, it's, I think, very easy to despair. Like the Basque fisherman's prayer, we might want to cry to God that the sea is so big and our boat is so small. The problems are so great, we find it hard to cope. But it's then we need to be hearing these words from Hebrews, let us be firm and unswerving in the confession of our hope. There's a wonderful story about hope that comes from the Second World War. In the winter of 1941, the composer Oliver Messiaen was a prisoner of war in Stalag 8A in Silesia. And he believed that the gospel because he was profoundly Christian in belief, he believed that the gospel offered hope to his fellow prisoners. And so he managed to gather together four instruments. There was a battered violin, there was a cello with a missing string, how he replaced that I'm not quite sure, there was an old clarinet and there was a piano with stuck together keys. And for these instruments, he wrote one of the greatest pieces of music of the 20th century, based on the book of Revelation, which he called Quartet for the End of Time. 5,000 prisoners of war were in the audience, 
And Messiaen said this about that event, the cold was excruciating. The four performers played on broken down instruments, but never have I had an audience who listened with such rapt attention and comprehension. Their hope for the future was renewed, rekindled. The whole story is about the renewal of hope, which leads directly on to the second phrase from Hebrews, the second instruction. Meet together, encouraging one another. In difficult times, it's important to meet together, not in a little huddle to seek shelter from a dangerous world, but to build up strength and confidence and hope to face the harsh realities all around us. When we meet together to discuss faith and to pray and to worship as we're doing this morning, we're not merely singing or speaking in the dark. We're expressing our faith that what Christ has done is to inaugurate a new creation, which he called the kingdom of God. A world in which the old hierarchies and values have collapsed, and almost against the run of history, as St. Paul was to put it, there is now no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. And those who will catch this vision are encouraged and strengthened to look at the gathering clouds and face whatever is coming with renewed hope and fresh energy. And then comes the third of our phrases from Hebrew. See how each of us may arouse others to love and active goodness. John Pritchard, the former Bishop of Oxford, has some wise words. The Christian hope, he says, is not a vague, fluffy optimism that things will get better. Hope is an action, a clear-eyed engagement with the problems we face in the light of confidence in a loving and purposeful God. Not fluffy, vague, ideas, but action. I made a list when I was preparing for this sermon, a list in which seeing the world's suffering, we as a church and as individuals are already responding, or might respond, so that we share and encourage others to share in love and active goodness. And it was quite a long list. And it's an encouraging list. And here are just some of the things from it. Welcoming refugees, advocating fair trade, collecting money to support children and the elderly, praying for one another and for the work of the church, running groups to strengthen faith and develop discipleship, giving gifts of food to the food banks, being a street angel, offering support to a neighbour or to a community group, 
signing petitions or writing letters to free political prisoners or to influence political decisions through Christian aid. Christian aid calling, for example, for a big shift in climate control and sharing in their battle for tax justice to combat corporate tax dodging that so impoverishes de developing countries. And those are just some of them. We could add more and more. We are certainly not without influence and we are attempting to arouse others as well as ourselves to love and active goodness. So if we put all those phrases from the letter to the Hebrews together, it's saying to us, let us be firm and unswerving in the confession of our hope. Let us meet together, encouraging one another, and see how each of us may arouse others to love and active goodness. Jesus and the New Testament writers see the world as it really is. Yet they keep faith with a vision of a new world. And our task is to help to transform society and build this kingdom of God. The Remembrance Day service at Westminster Abbey last Sunday evening closed with a blessing which I have always believed to be important and today almost sums up our theme. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honour everyone. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.